Spring break is a wonderful time of year um, for a lot of things. It doesn't really affect us as adults except for maybe the blessing of having um, college students home or having our children home. But spring break, spring break is kind of a season of watching nature get back on track after, after the winter, you know? Of watching things start to bloom again, of seeing things turn green. And it just sort of reminds us that God is working. Uh, he was always there, even through the winter, but in the springtime we can in the springtime we can see his hand more evidently. Someone who was always there for me in my childhood was my brother. Um, my brother Justin and I shared a room until I was eight, year, eight years old. He had the top bunk and I had the bottom bunk. Uh, I had my side, he had his side. There were like Barbies and a dollhouse on my side and action figures and Legos and Hot Wheels on his side. Uh, he would steal my Barbies and pull their heads off and I would steal his action figures and play with them. Uh, I especially loved his um, Star Trek phaser. I would play with that. Um, and as we grew older, the, when we moved out of that apartment because we were getting a little too big to share a room, um, he was always just a wall away. He was always there. The funny thing was that when we shared a room, um, his side was always neat and my side was always messy. The minute we got our own rooms, um, my room was neat and his room had like a foot of debris on the bottom of it. I found that really interesting. Um, that year was a bad year for us. We both got bullied badly at the school we were at. And it was not as bad for me as it was for him. But we would come home from all of that and we would have each other. We would play together. He was a, he was a budding, ah, oh, what's the right word to use in this setting? He was a budding escapist. He, he, liked, to, he liked to practice getting out of um, knots of different kinds. And so when mom and dad uh, weren't home, we would practice his escapes and uh, he would play with the katana that my grandfather had gotten him. And that kind of freaked me out a little, but whatever, I survived. We got older and we moved to another school, one that was kinder to us. And just, we were, he was always a wall away. He was always there. And there's something very comforting about having someone who's always there, even when bad stuff happens. And he was the, we were there for each other in that bad year we had where we were both being bullied. And we were there for each other when we went to a new school where, where things were better. And just, there was always that presence there. And we knew that we could always have each other's back. In the Bible, there's a story there's a story about God's presence that's very heavy. It's very heavy because 
It's about how God is present when horrible things happen. If you turn with me to your, turn with me to your notes, um, we have our key text for today. In Acts 7, verses 54 through 56. A few weeks ago, it's been an interesting journey the last couple of months to see um, parts of different services that would have gone very well with this message go by. Several weeks ago, there was an excellent presentation of this story done in Legos for Children's Story. And last week, there was a great song that would have gone really well with the sermon. That's okay. So if you listened to the children's story several weeks ago, you know what built up to this moment. Stephen, Stephen was a godly man. He was a deacon. And the deacons were established to deal with a very specific problem. The early church believed in caring for the widows and the poor. And eventually, the ministry of caring for the widows and the poor became so overwhelming that the apostles couldn't do it all, so they, and they also found that the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected for the Aramaic-speaking ones. So they appointed seven deacons to take care of the ministry to widows and the poor uh, to make sure that no one got overlooked. And so Stephen was very well-respected in the church, and he was very much a godly man. But he was seized by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and he was given a chance to speak. And leading up to the text you have in front of you is this long, long speech about the relationship between the Jewish rulers, and the prophets. At any rate, he winds up this speech, and when they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. In one translation it says, he looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God is always present, even in the trial. Even when bad things are happening, God is present. God is always there. We may not see him like Stephen did, but he is always there. But one thing I find interesting is that Stephen looked up. Stephen gazed into heaven. He was looking for God in the middle of his trial. There was, there was a book I read uh, when I first started pastoring by a man called Andy Stanley called The Principle of the Path. And one of, 
this guy writes books that could easily be five pages long and say just as much as they do in the whole book. The biggest takeaway I got from it was um, attention determines direction. Attention determines direction. Stephen was paying attention to God, so that's where his mind was. When we talk about attention determining direction, uh, what happens when you're learning how to drive and some well-meaning person who's trying to teach you says, don't drive into the ditch? What are you thinking about? The ditch. You're likely to hit it because you're thinking about it. Um, when you notice someone attractive when you're very young or even older, and you pay attention to them, does it change you? In the summer between fifth and sixth grade, I saw another Stephen, <laughs> paid attention to him for 10 years, and eventually ended up marrying him. <laughs> attention determines direction. even if it's not necessarily intention. <laughs> so what I'm saying here is that God is always present, but what draws us near to God is paying attention to him. Paying attention to him. And that is what brings us in the direction of God. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. Um... The story, unfortunately, does not end with Stephen seeing the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The passage continues. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. One summer at Andrews, I was reading a book that took place in the Middle East, and it described what a stoning actually looks like. It's not a fast or painless way to die. It's slow, and it's traumatic. God is always there, and yet despite this, Despite, despite the fact that we have a God who is in heaven, true horrors happen anyway. I debated whether or not to use the word horrors, but there's no better word. Stoning is a horror. Death is a horror. I opened this sermon by talking about my brother. You see, he grew into a very handsome young man who was well-liked and well-loved. And he went on, he did a bunch of mission work. And um, I remember when he was headed out to Romania to preach his first evangelistic series, he was being fitted for a suit. And I was so proud to have such a handsome brother 
Oh, he was tall. He had beautiful auburn hair, hazel eyes. The girls loved him. There was one summer where I swear our answering machine was, this is so-and-so, call me. This is so-and-so else, call me. He was 17, headed out to Romania. And um, when he got back from Romania, he had a week to get himself together before we both went off to Peru, where he would also be preaching and doing construction. And I would be doing vacation Bible school because I was doing that even back then. Um, I loved kids even back then. Anyway, in that week, we had a choir festival, which if you're a music teacher, if you are music teacher's children, choir festival is not a passive experience in which you just show up and sing. If you are a music teacher's child, choir festival is work. It is sleepless work. <laughs> so by the time we got on the plane to Peru, my brother and I, we were pretty ragged, but him far more than me. It was 10 days. It was 10 days of hard work. Um, I, I think I had the easier share in doing vacation Bible school, but he was doing construction and preaching, which means taxing both your body and your mind. Um, there was a great turnout from the village of Cascas, and um, it went really well. I, I remember in particular a sermon where he talked about Martin Luther and finding peace in Jesus, and that had a, a long-lasting effect on me. The last day of the trip rolled around, and the last day of the trip rolled around, and the VBS crew was actually supposed to join the construction crew up in the highlands in Chorillo Alto. And so we did a vacation Bible school for the kids up in the mountains there. And um, afterwards, we joined the construction crew. And I was watching my brother work so hard. He was shoveling cement with a strength and an energy that was just incredible and smoothing down the cement floor of the church very carefully, very smoothly. And as a joke, he um, wrote his name in the slab there. Uh, and then it was time for lunch. And after lunch, I don't know whose idea it was, but some of these young men decided to go for a hike. And I wanted to join them. There were some ruins up there, and I wanted to see the ruins. And uh, the ruins were not impressive ruins. They were definitely no um, Chichen Itza or, um, oh, what's the really amazing one? Machu Picchu, Machu Picchu. They were no Machu Picchu, just a couple of little tunnels. Then they wanted to hike some more. They wanted to uh, hike the mountain. And of course, I wanted to follow them. I looked up to my brother. He looked at me and he said, Jillian, don't go up there. There will be better hikers than you. That just made me mad. That made me mad. Justin, you know I'm a stronger hiker than, than, than most of those guys. You know this. I've done Half Dome with you multiple times. 
And he, he said something that I found very interesting. I know, Jillian, but I don't want to call mom and dad home about you. He walked off with the group, and I yelled at his retreating back, I don't want to call mom and dad home about you either. That was 15 years ago today. I have been without my brother for 15 years now. This year, I just realized last night, um, marks an interesting turning point where I've had more time without him than with him. The details, the details of the accident aren't important. The name he, the name he wrote in the, in the concrete is still there. They left it there. When his body was shipped back to the United States and the coroner opened it, he said he had flashbacks of Vietnam. It was that bad. I wish I could get that image out of my head. There are horrors. God is there, but there are genuine horrors in this world. Death is a horror. Next slide. This picture became famous in about 1994 uh, during a famine. I've done a lot of reading on hunger preparing for this weekend's 30-hour famine. And the photographer who took this picture uh, thought this was a little girl. It turns out that it's actually a little boy um, who, was, who collapsed on their way to a feeding center. And the vulture came nearby. And the photographer took their time getting a good shot, and then he shooed the bird away. And then he sat down and cried, thinking about his daughter. This picture went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. But he was so scarred from the horrors he saw that a few months later he was gone. How do we, as Christians who believe in God, handle the genuine horrors in this world? When I got back from Peru, we were studying World War I and World War II in world history, and they were showing archival footage of the young men who were killed and the, and the Jews who were put to death in the concentration camps. And my teacher noticed that I was shaking and sometimes crying when the lights came back on at the end of class. And he knew why, because he had been on the trip. Um, and he said, Jillian, you don't have to watch this stuff. You, you, you don't have to put yourself through this. And I said, I'm glad I react this way. Because each of those young men had a sister, or a wife, or a mother. Someone who cared about them like I care about my brother. It's easy to go numb in the face of all of the horrors in this world. It's easy to get compassion fatigue. It's easy to tune it out after a while. I started listening to the news this week after a long time of not doing so. <laughs> There's a lot of awful stuff going on in the world. Oh my word. 
floods, terrorist attacks, politics of different kinds. There's a lot of genuinely horrible things going on out there. And it leads us to some questions. First of all, how could God allow this to happen? If God is present and God is all-powerful, how is he allowing this to happen? I had a lot of people asking that question after my brother died, and I get this question sometimes when I am studying the diseases of hunger. I learned about one yesterday when I was reading called Noma. Do not Google images of it unless you want to have nightmares. It is the most horrible thing I've ever seen to disfigure human flesh. And it just makes you wonder, how could God let this happen? And that leads to another question. Well, God did let this happen. Is God really good? Is God really good? I have never questioned God's existence. But at times, not often, mind you, but at times, in the face of the genuine horrors that exist, I have questioned his goodness. Is God good if he allows all of this to happen? Finally, we're stuck with the issue of, what do we do about it? And this is, this is the dicey part, because of the various books I read on hunger, what they all had in common was that hunger is an uncomfortable, talk about, uh, an uncomfortable topic, because unlike infectious diseases, it ultimately points a, figure, a finger at the society in which it happens and says, something went wrong here. Something went wrong here. This weekend's famine is concentrated on the hunger next door. 2,000 households go hungry in Glendora every year. In Glendora, next door. What do we do about it? <laughs> Even if every person in this room dedicated themselves to do something about it, could we feed all of the hungry people just in the next town over? I don't know. I don't know. The text continues. While they were stoning Stephen, and mind you, this is a painful, terrible thing, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Do not hold this sin against them. There's two parts of this, there's two parts of this statement of Stephen's that I find interesting. One is recognizes, he recognizes that despite all of this, God is still in control. God is still present, but he also recognizes that God is not the one throwing stones at him. 
Sin is ultimately what causes suffering. Do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, Stephen is saying, I trust you, Lord. Stephen is saying, I am looking up to you despite what's happening to me. And we must look up to God. You see, God is not passive. The question was, of course, why doesn't God do something about it? That's a very complicated question, which is not easily answered to someone who is hurting. When someone is grieving acutely, you do not want to sit down there and launch into a detailed explanation of why there is evil in the world. You need to listen and give them a hug. But be assured that God is not passive. Because you know what happened as Stephen was saying this? Someone was hearing it. Someone was hearing it. We'll get to that in a moment. Even when horrible things happen, good can come of them. I do not believe that God causes horrible things to happen, but he does make good of them. I do not believe he willed my brother to die, but because of my brother's death, there were so many people in that village who came to Jesus, and a school of the prophets for training lay people was established in that village, and it was a revival in that area for many years. I don't know what good will come of the problem of hunger in the world. But if nothing else, let it serve to wake us up to the blessings of God's abundance. God is not passive. However horrible things are going, God is going to do something about it. It may not be soon. It may not even be in our lifetimes. But God is, sooner or later, going to do something about it. See, I believe that I will see my brother again. I believe I will see him again, looking handsome and dapper as he should be, not as I remember my last look of him. I believe that the children who are suffering and dying from hunger, whose faces are disfigured by Noma, who are going through such horrible things, that they will be made whole, that they will be fed by the very bread of life. And that Jesus will draw them to himself. I believe that eventually, eventually the cry of the martyrs under the altar, how long, O oh Lord, will be answered. I believe this because the Bible says it. 
I believe this because otherwise I cannot make sense of a world in which there is a God who is supposedly good and bad things happen. I believe that God is going to do something about the horrors of this world. Whatever it is, financial issues, whatever it is, death, Jesus has a solution for it. Jesus has relief for it. Jesus has comfort for it. And in the meantime, in the meantime, God can use us to change it. He can use us to change it. There are some things that we cannot change as human beings. I cannot bring my brother back to life. It's true. I cannot bring back the thousands of children who have died since we started our fast at 1 o'clock yesterday. But here's what we can do. We can comfort those who mourn. We can be silent, listen, and hold them. We can work within our best efforts to bring relief to the hungry with whatever limited means we have. There is a beautiful Garth Brooks song called The Change. I hear them saying, he'll never change things. And no matter what he does, it's still the same thing. But it's not the world that I am changing. I do this so the world will know that it will not change me. Our resources in this room are insufficient to fix the, the, the horrible things that happen in the world, right? But that is no excuse to throw up our hands and act helpless because even if we can only help one person that's still better than none. That's still better than none. I talked about my cats from here before. Oh, how I love my cats. You see, black cats, and both of my cats are black, die more frequently in shelters than any other color of cat. A part of it's because of the superstition about black cats. Another part of it is because people, when they're shopping for an animal to adopt, they want to connect emotionally with the critter, and the dark color of the fur makes it harder to see the animal's expression. So it's not just black cats that have a hard time getting adopted, but black dogs, black bunnies, black guinea pigs. And when I adopted our first cat, Chocolate, there were five more black cats in the group room with him. When we adopted our little black kitten, Natasha, oh, she's adorable. Uh, there was a whole litter or two of black kittens in there with her. What happened to the rest? I don't know. 
I don't know. I hope they were adopted, but it's equally possible that they weren't. But this I do know. Chocolate and Natasha are alive and comfortable and happy. Even if I couldn't save, even if I couldn't save Natasha's brothers and sisters or Chocolate's group mates, at least they are alive and well. Reaching out to save just one is still better than none. Giving a single piece of bread is still better than giving nothing. Smallest, the smallest attempt to do something about the world's horrors is still better than nothing. Even if the world's awfulness seems overwhelming, we must continue to hold a candle against the darkness. Well, Stephen changed one person. And we read this person's testimony later on in Acts. It's in your notes. And he's speaking to a crowd at this point. He says, After I had returned to Jerusalem, and while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Jesus saying to me, Hurry! And get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And while the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I myself was standing by, approving and keeping the coats of those who killed him. Then he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." That young man was Paul. That young man was Paul. And you know what Paul went on to do? He went on to write a huge chunk of the New Testament. He went on to found churches all over the Mediterranean. He went on to introduce Jesus to so many people. Paul is the reason why people who look like me have heard of Jesus. Think about that. Without Paul, Christianity would have stayed in the Middle East. It would have stayed in Jerusalem, maybe Samaria. But Paul, Paul was one of the first people to take missionary work to a foreign field seriously. And that's why Christianity is a global religion now. All because Stephen, in the midst of great horror, had an act of mercy in being able to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I believe that that was the opening wedge into Saul, later Paul's, heart. I believe that's what made him open to the vision he later had on the Damascus Road. I believe that Stephen forgiving him was the only way that he was able to make peace with what had happened when he repented. And I do believe 
that Stephen and Paul will meet in heaven. And I'm not sure who will be crying more. Stephen for seeing Paul there, or Paul for seeing and finally being able to make right with Stephen. I don't know what you personally have suffered. I don't know how many of life's horrible things you've been exposed to. I don't know what each of you is going through or what you have seen, but I know that we've all been through something. I want you to know that you are not alone, that God is with you. I want you to know that something will eventually change. I want you to look up to God, to look up to him in his glory, and to not settle for saying that this is how things should be. They're not. I want us to look up to God to look up to his beautiful face and dare, dare to dream, to think, and to act on the idea that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through and that we are the ones to start making it happen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, In the midst of all of the darkness that exists here, help us to look up to you. Help us to turn our eyes to you. Lord, you are a God of justice. You are a God of mercy. And you are a good God. Help us to pay attention to your work in the world and help us to hold on to hope in the changes you will bring. In Jesus' name, amen.